All right, so this is a very pivotal morning. Again, I had to, there was like three things going on. I needed a red stole for the ordinations. I need white stole because today's feast of Christ the King had to remember to change my stole, white flowers, you know, the whole nine yards. So here this morning, we're also at the end of ordinary time at the feast of Christ the King. And I realized this morning, went back and looked at my calendar that we've been sitting with the gospel of Mark since May. And thinking about this for now six months, that what would it mean for us to follow Jesus? And there have been a few people who that has been a kind of a new and fresh idea, who they find themselves following Jesus for the first time seriously. For others of us who have been trying to follow Jesus for a long time, as we've sat with the gospel of Mark, we've just looked at the places in our own heart, our own souls, our own minds, our emotions, our social self, and just wondered together what would it mean for us to follow Jesus ever more deeply. So when we come to the end of ordinary time, we also come to the end of Mark. And the end of Mark has two issues. One, which involves a phrase that you would expect to hear in seminary, but you wouldn't expect to hear in a, a sermon on Sunday morning. And that is the phrase textual criticism. And that is to say that the end of Mark seems to be missing. I mean, most scholars think it's missing. Some don't. Some think Mark meant to end the way he did with the, the three women in sort of shocked awe. Most scholars, I would say, are convinced that somehow the ending of Mark is missing and that some faithful scribe then added an ending to it, trying to give it the normal sort of post-resurrection appearances, right? Matthew, Luke, and John all have passages after the resurrection where Jesus is interacting with his first friends. And Mark doesn't have that. And so it seemed wrong to some scribe or somewhere. And over the tradition, this, this longer ending of Mark, as it's known, which we read this morning, uh, has been attached. Well, so the, you know, the older Bibles that a lot of us grew up with, the King James, the New King James, they all have this longer ending. But those texts, those English texts, are based on 12th century manuscripts. And we now have 4th century manuscripts, but they weren't discovered until the 19th century. And so now our newer Bibles, like the NIV, the ESV, the New Revised Standard Version, they all have Mark's shorter ending. Also, the church fathers in the 2nd and 3rd centuries don't comment past verse 8. And so it just leaves us kind of like, how do we handle this? It was so technical, I had to, I actually had to, I had to actually call Dennis this week, you know, our so we have a canon for church and clergy care here this morning and a canon for theology. So I had to call my canon for theology and say, Dennis, how are all your new colleagues? You know, how, what's, what's sort of the state of scholarship on the ending of Mark? And so you just kind of have to make a decision about how you're going to deal with it. So the way we're going to deal with it this morning is that our text will be verses 1 through 8. And we'll think of verses 14 and 20 as sort of an ancient scribal sermon of somebody commenting on what they've read. All right, so here we go. I think in terms of what we've been doing in this series on Mark, the resurrection is put before us this morning as the basis for following Jesus. Last week, we looked at the crucifixion, and we saw how in the crucifixion, God begins to remake the world in this very surprising way and begins to remake us. It was stunning to anybody who thought about it that the cross revealed the humble, servant-hearted giving of God, and it reveals the way of the kingdom, and this is why Jesus said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. So right at the heart of this story, in fact, one of the commentaries that I've been reading all these months, and now I forget the, the author, uh, his commentary is, is 
I think, called Mark's apologetic for the cross. He basically sees all of Mark pointing to what we did last week. Just it, It's all about understanding how the cross is fundamental to the kingdom of God in this very surprising way. I mean, just think about it. How does ruling and reigning come in brutal crucifixion? I mean, that looks like the antithesis of ruling and reigning. It looks like utter defeat. But somehow Jesus is teaching us that no, right at the heart of the kingdom of God, and therefore right at the heart of what it means to follow Jesus, is cruciform. And we might say that if spiritual formation had a physical shape, that that shape would be cruciform. You know, often when we think of formation today, and I don't have a beef with any of this, but, you know, we might think of it in, in terms of inner dynamics. We might think of it in terms of the, the sort of the parts of the human being that roll up into this one whole soul. You know, we approach formation in all sorts of ways. But if the notion that formation is essentially cruciform is missing, then we've actually missed how Jesus puts this together. The way Jesus puts together ruling and reigning of God comes in brutal, unfair, unjust suffering the way Jesus puts this together is if you want to be in on this, then you too have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Well, who would do such a thing? On what basis? Where would you find confidence? Where would you even find sensibility? How is that in any way even coherent? Except for the resurrection. It's the resurrection that's the power for living a cruciform life. And I would say to the New Ordinance this morning, having a cruciform ministry. It's the resurrection that makes true and real the words of Jesus in John when he said, whoever obeys my word will never see death, will never taste death. And so the resurrection is the vindication of the death of Jesus. It's the vindication of his kingdom teaching. It's, it's the vindication of what his deeds of power meant and what his authoritative teaching meant and just his manner of being in the world. Well, we pick up our story this morning, if you'll look at your text, with the three women going to the tomb. And these three women are held up to us symbolically because of the surpassing quality of what they were taking to Jesus to anoint him. Most Jews would have just used oil, whatever oil they could possibly put their hands on. But these women had somehow got a hold of aromatics. And aromatics were like stunning in their cost. They were kind of like, just think of the most enormous diamond ring or something that, you know, some guy buys a girl or, you know, just think of a, a present of surpassing value like the, the TV commercials you see these days where somebody bought their wife a Lexus. I mean, I haven't never bought Debbie a Lexus, but I can imagine what it feels like, right? Something like that. So something like that is what's happening with these women. They're thinking, what is this? What, how can we show to Christ our surpassing love for him? And they do it through these aromatics. And this has always been seen to be a beautiful act of love and devotion. Not any different than the widow's mite, which we saw a few weeks ago. And it was just two weeks back, you might remember, we read the story of Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus' feet with oil and how the widow and Mary of Bethany and these three women all stand out as they reveal to us the heart of discipleship. And again, I would say to the ordinance this morning, 
I think they reveal to us the heart of ministry. That ministry is not mere professionalism. It's not merely the accomplishing of tasks. But the best ministry I've ever experienced in myself or experienced from others comes from an inward bent to love. An inward bent to will the good of others, to be attentive, and to manifest this in this sort of fervent commitment to Jesus that we see in the widow, in Mary of Bethany, and in these three women. Well, you see in your text that they see and hear the voice of this young man, or what a lot of commentaries would think is an angel. And the ESV says they're alarmed. And the young man or the angel says back to them, do not be alarmed. And so just picture the angel saying to these ladies, the Greek text actually says something like, do not be extremely joyfully amazed. It's like, stop being overwhelmingly flabbergasted. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> I mean, what if you're the woman who walked out in the front yard and there's your Lexus, right? And, and an angel is sitting on the hood and says, stop being flabbergasted. <laughs> something like that is happening here where, where he's literally saying, you know, like, stop. And only because he's about to give them an explanation. So it's sort of sort of like, well, hold on, hold on. Here's what's real. Jesus isn't here. He's gone. He's been raised to life. Now go back to being flabbergasted. <laughs> go back to this is stunning, amazing news. And I want to say that this is a serious learning curve, actually. It's, it's so easy to look back at Peter's foibles or these women not getting exactly what's going on and not see that these people were all on an unspeakable learning curve and that these women were being introduced to the notion that lying behind the material world is a spiritual reality. And they're being sort of introduced here to the importance in the spiritual life of unseen spiritual beings and how actually the unseen world is the basis for both discipleship and ministry. One Franciscan author who I read this week said, the tradition of the church holds these three women as true models of discipleship. These women came out of sheer love for Jesus to minister to him in his death. They also came trusting that somehow they'd be able to do what they hoped, in spite of the fact that they would not normally be strong enough to open a tomb. And because of this selfless generosity, and I want you to hear, the, hear there the basis for Christian life and ministry, this selfless generosity, to the one whom they loved, and because of their determination, they're honored most appropriately at every celebration of the resurrection. The tradition they go on to say refers to them as equals to the apostles. And because of their love for the Lord, they were given the privilege of announcing the good news of the resurrection to the apostles, who were then commissioned to proclaim the good news to the ends of the earth. So then as we come to this end of this series in Mark, and we come to the end of the way all the Gospels end with resurrection, how do we practice resurrection in followership of Jesus? How do we practice resurrection in ministry? What difference does the resurrection make? for discipleship and ministry. And the first thing I would want to suggest comes from Colossians 1, where Paul writes that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. 
that in everything he might be preeminent. Now let's just think about that for a moment. Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. And a moment ago, I read you those passages from John where Jesus says, whoever lives and believes in me, though they perish, they shall not die. They'll never taste death. They'll never see death. And I want you to think for a moment how much not believing that, not believing that we are safe even in death, produces the magnitude and the brutality of human deception, human manipulation, human bullying, human controlling, because we don't think we're safe, even in death. Death remains for so many people this great, great power over them. But when that's broken, other things begin to break in our lives, and it's obviously way easier said than done. I get that. But things begin to break where we're just increasingly can see that Jesus is just the firstborn from among the dead. That means we're all the second. And then in the same way that he never experienced death, we will never experience death. We just experience a translation to a different sort of life. And then Paul says that that means that in everything he's preeminent. That's to say he's preeminent in life preeminent in our devoted followership of him as he was preeminent in the widow and Mary of Bethany and of these three women. And again, to the new ordinance this morning, I would want to suggest to you that Jesus is also preeminent in ministry. Here's how us ladies, wherever Carla is, and us guys miss this sort of never going to die thing and get controlling. When Jesus is not preeminent ministry, that means need becomes preeminent. And need is a terrible taskmaster. It means that calling can become preeminent. Or our gifts and expressing our gifts can become preeminent. Or typical to modern ministry, vision can become preeminent. And it's not that need is wrong or calling or gifts or vision. It's just that when they become preeminent, we, we lose the gift that we're being offered here for Christian life and Christian ministry. And that is the absolute preeminence of Christ, who is the firstborn from among the dead. And of course, when Jesus is sending out his first friends to preach the gospel, he says to them, and surely I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. I'm I'm alive. And I'll be with you as you go out and work with me. Paul said in Romans 8, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. And so you go out alive with the spirit of Christ living in us. Well, as I said, we started sometime in May in these readings in Mark. And I don't expect you to remember, but the first words of Mark's gospel is this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. Those are his first words. This is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God. And it ends in Mark 8 with these three women standing in awestruck wonder. And so I wonder if we hold those two things before us. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it ends in awestruck wonder. What might this be suggesting to us about Christian life? What might it suggest to us about ordained ministry in the post-resurrection giving of the spirit era. And I think it means at least this, 
the older I get, the farther along I get this, uh, down this path, it seems increasingly true and fruitful to know that fundamental to all followership of Jesus, to all Christian ministry, is awestruck wonder. The more that we can consistently think great things about God, the more that I think we walk with him and serve him in peace. And that's not, awestruck wonder is not the opposite of doubt. All of us doubt. Those women were doubting. Those women were like, what the heck is going on? They went to bury a friend. Are you feeling me here? They went to bury a friend. It would be like you being asked to go identify a body at a morgue. And the body's not there. Of course they were like, wondering, doubting, whatever. But there was this awestruck wonder. This is Jesus Christ. This is the normal reaction, awestruck wonder about the greatness of God. And that's why these reactions of these ladies at the tomb stands in such a long tradition. Because the tradition is, this is what it looks like to be captivated by the greatness of God. I mean, we don't have time this morning, but if you could just think, if I could just somehow keep cultivating ideas about the greatness of God, the sufficiency of God, you know, all the things you know about God, the big words like omniscient, you know, all-knowing and all-powerful, all those things, the greater God is actually to us, not what we think we should believe, not what we think we ought to believe, but our actual conception of God is deeply fundamental to how faithful we can actually be with him day in and day out. And again, to you ordinands, when ministry gets tough, what we think about God is right at the heart of it. So there's this long tradition that these women are standing in. Deuteronomy says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Isaiah says, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Or Psalm 8, those of you ordained this morning, think this. O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, what are human beings that you're mindful of us and care for us? O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Or think of Hebrews 1. The sun radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything by the mighty power of his command. And then lastly, had we been reading Matthew instead of Mark during this ordinary time, Right at the end of Jesus' ongoing tension with the religious leaders of his day, one of the very last things he says to them is, your mistake is this. And he doesn't say anything about the law. He doesn't say anything about sacrifice. He doesn't say anything about church in that sense. Jesus looks at them for one of the very last times and says, your mistake is you don't know the power of God. That's what was fundamental. You just don't get how great of a being we're talking about here. And the sufficiency of this great being who we want to follow. 
and serve. If you were here this morning for the ordination, and I know most of you weren't, so I'll just say to you that every ordination service starts with this sentence. I think I can get it. My sisters and brothers, every Christian is called to follow and serve Jesus. But some are called to holy orders. And so for all of us, however we follow God in our vocations, our callings, based on our gifts mix, a fundamental mistake for both ministry and followership can be that we haven't yet taken on board fully the power of God. But these three ladies, they're iconic. They walked into a scene where they discovered the unimaginable power and goodness of God. And this is why they're exemplars. They're examples for us to mimic in life and followership and in ministry as we announce and embody and demonstrate that Jesus is alive and that he's presently living the most interesting and consequential life imaginable. I wrote that sentence last night, and sitting at my desk, I pictured myself standing here and saying to you, that may be the most important sentence I've said to you in nine years, that Jesus is alive. This isn't doctrine, this isn't religious theory, he's actually alive, and he's presently living the most interesting and consequential life imaginable. Superintending human history to its fulfillment, to the completion that the Trinity imagined before they said, let there be light. So before there's let there be light, there's this Trinity of beings who speaks creation into existence, and that creation is going to come to its fulfillment. And superintending that is the Lord Christ. Think of the greatness. Think of the stunning power and goodness and consistency of his love, the depth of his love. This is what makes people like Paul cry out, oh, that you could know the depth and breadth and power and length and sustainability of God's love, that you could somehow find your life caught up in the greatness of God. That the one who said, let it be, is going to make sure it is, and it's Jesus who's making sure that all happens. I cannot think of a more interesting or consequential life. He's alive. And that's what's made six months of those words so worthy. Follow me? Question mark. That's to say he's inviting us to join him in this stunningly interesting, consequential life. Now, I said I would say a word about the sermon part. In the quote sermon, we have, I think, the last thought I want to leave you with about Christian life and ministry. It says that the disciples went out. If you look at the end of the text there. The disciples went out and proclaimed the good news everywhere. And the Lord worked with them. He wasn't dead. Non-bodily personal power accompanied the 12. How else did he work with them? Now, he wasn't there in body, so non-bodily. But he remained a person. He was still the Lord Jesus, the one they had always knew, and he was still working with them. That's power. And so the, the, the thing that I think Mark wants us to see is this is the goodness and the greatness of the gospel of Jesus. This is the awestruck wonder that this gospel Mark was meant to produce in us and to help us see that Jesus really is alive here at the end, really is living this interesting, consequential life 
and that he will work with us, both all, all of us and those in ordained ministry, that he worked with them, confirming the fact that he is alive and the gospel is true with signs that accompanied them. I just, I don't, you know, you're reading between the lines here, but I just hear Mark wondering, are you an awestruck wonder? Can you see the greatness of God? And if so, will you follow me? Now, just before the creed, I want to give you a moment of silence. And I want you to reflect back on these readings in Mark. Could be something just in the last few weeks. Could be something going back to late spring or early summer where it wasn't something that I said, but something the Holy Spirit said to you, where there was a breakthrough for you. And I want to invite you just to call that to mind. That might invoke thankfulness. It might evoke in you uh, an intensifying of some sort of vow you made. But in the same way Jesus said, to his first followers, I'll meet you in Galilee. Galilee was a symbol of their first love when they first knew who he was and first loved him. So when Jesus says, I'll meet you in Galilee, he's saying something like, I'll meet you at your first love. And so wherever in this series that first love for Jesus has been sparked in you, just sit with it for a moment.